When we think about our best conception of the universe, from the smallest scales to the largest scales, yes, we have the fundamental subatomic particles we know of and how they assemble into atoms and molecules and even larger structures. While on the largest scales, we have galaxies, the great cosmic web, stars, planets, and these other enormous structures. Yet it's all governed by what happens on those small scales. It's all governed by the same laws that all the particles in the universe are governed by. The way we put this picture together was through the interplay of both theory and and experiment and observation. Theory is what we use to put these enormous frameworks in place to help make sense of the full suite of the data we have. But experiment, measurement, observation, this is where we actually gain the knowledge and perform the critical tests for what the universe is actually doing. This is where our most important physical knowledge about reality itself comes from. How do we get there? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. While most of the headlines you hear about and most of the stories you hear about come from a very theoretical perspective where we say, okay, here's what's known and here's what some of ideas are for what comes next. Let's go test those ideas. That's a great way to go ahead and look for new discoveries. That's a great way to guide experiment. But also, experiment does so much more than just test a theorist's ideas. And to prove this and drive this home, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program experimental physicist Dr. Laura Manenti. Laura is a experimental physicist at NYU Abu Dhabi, where she's a postdoctoral researcher. She works on the Xenon 1 ton experiment and on the Protodune experiment at CERN. And I'm so pleased to welcome her here. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks. Yeah. So, one of the things that I think people would love to gain an appreciation of is, you know, I think a lot of people have this perception that, oh, experimentalists only know to look for what theorists tell them they should look for. And I don't think that's a very accurate picture. What what would you say to someone who might think that? So I guess that the first thing that I would say is that experimentalists look for things that they can look for. So experiments are a lot about technology, uh, the uh, available technology. And uh, if a theorist com comes up with experiments, but we not, don't have the means to do that, we simply cannot do that. And also we have to deal with uh, policymakers, uh, uh, funding agencies, uh, uh, money in general, uh, especially big experiments, uh, like, for example, Xenon 1 ton or Dune and the Proto-Dunes, uh, those require a lot of money. And that means that you have to convince people who have the money to fund your experiments. Uh, and that's not so trivial. And also, out of the many experiments that can be made, uh, only a few in the end are picked, are chosen. 
So it's not uh, so straightforward to say we have a theory, we want to test it, let's do an experiment. Right. I mean, I when I think about this, I think, you know, okay, we have we have all of the data that we've all collected throughout the history of humankind. We have all the data from all the experiments we've done and the measurements we've made and the observations we've taken. And then we say, okay, what lies beyond that? What where are the frontiers and what are the frontiers we can explore? And I think what you're doing with the two experiments you mentioned, what you're what you're doing with Xenon and what you plan on doing with Dune, this is blowing way past the frontiers of where we've already looked. And I think there's a value in doing that, in exploring this unexplored region of space, even if you're exploring in a place where theory doesn't really have good predictions for what might be there. So also another thing that com- comes to my mind is that uh, the technology for these experiments uh, requires a lot of time. So for example, in particular, for time projection chambers, uh, which uh, is basically the technology on which Dune and Xenon Wontan are based on, it took us uh, about 50 years uh, to get to the state where we are now. So the uh, I guess that the first uh, kind of, if you it was not a real time projection chamber, but that was the technology was in the uh, 1970s uh, from a Russian called Dolgoshine. And it took us f- since then till now to get to these enormous uh, uh, TPCs. Uh, and also, the technology that Xenon uh, Wontan uses uh, is slightly different from uh, the technology you would see in a neutrino experiment, uh, because the energies, uh, uh, the energy scale, for example, is different. Uh, radio purity is a problem. It's a huge problem for Xenon, but it's not a problem uh, for uh, protodunes and Dune. Uh, so it takes a lot of time. And yeah, it took us about 50 years to get to where we are now. That's that's so fascinating to me because, you know, I'd, I'd like to say for everyone, when she talks about TPCs or time projection chambers, uh, this is this is a technique that really got sort of popular, I would say, in the in the 1980s. Um, with the rise of yes. like the neutrino experiments and the nucleon decay experiments where people, what you do is you build a big tank full of some kind of liquid or some kind of material. And when an event happens, and an event is when a particle strikes this big contained material you have, uh, you produce a signal all throughout the medium. Maybe you have a trail where a particle gets created with high energies and maybe it's charged and it collides with other particles and you'll get this big cascade of something. Maybe you'll get particles that move faster than the speed of light in that particular medium rather than, you know, speed of light in vacuum, which you can't which you can't break. Uh, but if you do that, you get this special kind of light called Cherenkov radiation. But regardless of what technique you use, what particles you're talking about, or how you're measuring it, you're definitely going to get a trail of particles if the right interaction occurs. Now, when you say TPC, 
This is the remarkable technique of how you take this inevitable thing where you have these interaction between two particles that produces a trail or a jet or whatever you want to call it, and you turn it into an observable and information-rich signal. You said this was 50 years in the making. Can you tell us a little bit about how a time projection chamber works? What is the physics behind a time projection chamber? Sure. So to start with, uh, I'm going to pick the uh, xenon one ton example. So uh, so TPC stands for time projection chamber, and I'm try I'm going to try to explain why why time and why projection. So uh, the xenon one ton TPC is actually not that big compared to, for example, protodune. So the TPC is a cylinder and it's one meter high. And in this case, is uh, uh, as the name says, it uh, it is filled uh, with uh, liquid xenon. But xenon one ton is not simply a time projection chamber. It's a dual phase time projection chamber. So what does the dual mean? The dual refers to the fact that the xenon in the chamber is present in its liquid and gaseous phase. So the majority of the chamber is filled up with liquid, and then you have a tiny little bit of space filled up with uh, uh, gas, uh, uh, xenon gas at the top. So how does it work? So let's say we have, uh, so let's say we believe in WIMPs. Uh, so WIMPs are these dark matter particles, uh, which we believe are out there. And uh, let's say that a WIMP enters our detector. What does it do? So the WIMP interacts with the xenon atoms, and the xenon atoms produce two things. They produce scintillation light, and they produce electrons. So the scintillation light, we call that primary scintillation, and usually it's abbreviated with S1. And that light is seen by photomultipliers tubes. We have many in xenon one ton. And we have the bottom of the detector is, is, is covered in, uh, in an array of uh, photomultiplier tubes. And by the way, photomultiplier tubes, uh, for people that don't know, are photosensors that look uh, very much like a, like a torch. And, and then the top of the chamber is also, uh, is also uh, covered in these photomultiplier tubes. So, so let, me, let, me, let me make sure everyone's with us. When you say, okay, we have these photomultiplier tubes, they're detecting the photons, um, and scintillation fibers also detect photons. Um, are these the photons that are produced from these particles that move faster than light? Are from the from the Cherenkov radiation, from the radiation produced by this, no. or is this produced by a different mechanism? This is a different mechanism. So this is really um, so. What happens is that the wind particle interacts with the nucleus of the of the xenon atom. Uh, the xenon atom recoils, and by recoiling, it produces light through two mechanisms, which are called excitation and recombination. So it's really a property of the xenon uh, more than the particle that moves through the xenon. So uh, basically, the, the wimp, in this case the wind, but it could be even an electron, it could be a neutron, uh, the only thing that does is making the argon, the, sorry, not the argon, the xenon recoiling. And when the xenon atom recoils, 
that produces light and by two mechanisms and then this light can be detected and then you have some electrons which are also produced and what happens to these electrons is that we apply an electric field so that the electrons are uh, drifted upwards and towards the liquid uh, surface just beneath the liquid surface we have a grid a mesh a stainless steel mesh and between the stainless steel mesh and the upper part of the gas, there we have an even higher electric field so that the electrons, when they get to the liquid surface, they can really be extracted into the gas. Okay. So I hope everyone's with me right now. So we have a scintillation signal. Some electrons are also produced and they can go upwards. Okay. We extract them. And then what happens next? So the electrons enter the gas phase. In the gas phase, another phenomenon happens, which is called electroluminescence, for which the electrons produce other light. We call this secondary scintillation. So you have the primary scintillation, which basically gives you the time zero of the event. That's the trigger. That tells you when the event happened, okay? And then you have a secondary scintillation and that tells you the position, so a projected position, okay? So an X, uh, Y uh, kind of coordinates. Why? Because you have an array of uh, photomultipliers tubes at the top. So by those photomultiplier tubes uh, read the light and they can tell you the X, Y position of the event. So that's why time projection chamber. And then what? Well, then we want to fully reconstruct the 3D position of the event. Okay. So we want to know if there was a wimp striking our xenon atom, where uh, did that happen? Okay. So we also want the Z coordinate. How do we do that? Well, we know the velocity of electrons in liquid xenon at a certain electric field. So from the time it took from going to the primary scintillation to the secondary scintillation, we can extract uh, the, the distance. So now we have a full 3D reconstruction of where the particle interacted in our detector. And that's fundamental. And wh why is that fundamental? Well, because for WIMPs, uh, you expect very, very few events, okay? We're talking about like uh, less than 10 events per year, okay? So you need to know where it happened because the majority of the events uh, actually happen uh, very close to the wall of the chamber. Why? Because you have any material basically is radioactive, okay? And that is a problem for dark matter because uh, there are many uh, elements that can can fake you a dark matter signal. So if we know that an event came very close to the uh, uh, to the walls of the detector, then we just we we just uh, uh, throw away that event. Okay, we only take events which happen at the center of our detector. Okay, and we call that center of the detector fiducial volume. That's our octave volume. In fact, in Zin one ton, we actually have 3.2 tons of liquid xenon, 
but actually the only xenon we use uh, is uh, around uh, two tons. And then we also reduce uh, that uh, uh, that uh, mass uh, uh, because we take away uh, part of the of the mass close to the to the walls of the chamber. All right. So let's see if we've got this because we want to make sure that everyone's followed. Yes. So yes. let me see. Yes. This is my big test. If I can explain this back to you, and if I can explain yes. it back to you. If I get anything wrong, this is your big chance to jump in and be like, no, 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 let me tell you how okay. it really is. And if we get it right, then we can we can continue. So let's say we've got this big this big chamber. It could be a small chamber, but we have a chamber and it's full of matter. It's xenon for the xenon one ton experiment, but maybe it's water for other experiments. Maybe it's chlorine for other experiments. Maybe it's argon, like whatever it is, you've got some material in there. And material means it's made out of atoms with a nucleus and electrons. I just interrupted. So it's usually noble gases. Okay. So uh, when we talk about time projection chamber technology is for noble gases, because you really want your particle to interact uh, with uh, an atom. And that's a property for argon, neon, uh, or xenon, for example. So you want it to be totally monatomic. You don't yes. want any molecules in there yes. messing you up. Yes. yes, exactly. Okay. And this makes sense because what's going to happen is... A particle's going to come in. I know you said wimp, but then you later said it can be anything, and I it it can be anything. We'll determine after it's a wimp, but whatever you get a signal, the signal is because a particle comes in and it strikes your atom there. And what's this going to do? It's going to impart momentum energy and momentum to this atom that it hits. And when we yes. say atom, we're really looking for the atomic nucleus, right? Yes, yes. All right, so we hit this atomic nucleus with a particle, and then what happens? First, this particle is going to recoil, which means it's going to slam into the other atoms around it. And when it does that, this is now an inelastic collision. It's going to produce heat, it's going to produce light, it's going to produce energy that propagates through the medium. Yes. This is what's going to create that first light signal. And where that light signal hits the bottom of the chamber and the top of the chamber, that's going to give you information about the strength of this hit that took place, and it's going to give you information about where in the chamber this hit took place a little bit. Is that right so far? Yes, you're right, yes. All right, then... After this, we're also going to produce additional particles. These particles are going to be electrons, and that's because when this energy gets imparted to the atom and it smashes into the other atoms around it, we have to conserve energy, we have to conserve momentum, and the energy binding electrons to the atoms in there is pretty small compared to the energies of these collisions. So what that means is we can create free electrons, we can kick electrons off of the atoms, and the electrons are going to be moving in a certain direction depending on the direction that the incoming particle hit this xenon or other nucleus. 
Yes. Is this right so far yes. too? The way the way I picture it is that the xenon atom moves uh, inside the other uh, inside the, the medium, and literally the, its electrons are stripped away. That's the way I imagine it. Uh, it's just the picture. Yes. Okay. All right. So the electrons, uh, it's it's just traveling, and like the electrons are just flying off of it, and it's like I'm free. I'm I'm getting rid of my electrons. Who needed them anyway? Exactly. Well, you do. Then, you do. You poor neutral exactly. atom. You you're gonna want them back as soon as they're gone. You're gonna want them back. And the electrons can decide to go back to the xenon atom. Okay, and that's cool. And that gives you recombination scintillation okay it's scintillation that comes from recombination but if you prevent them to going back to the atom by applying an electric field they can be pulled away and they do not recombine at that point and, and this is why you apply your electric field in a particular direction yes. because you want the electrons to go in a particular direction and this is this is a great this is a great little trick uh cuz you could do this with an electric field um or a magnetic field but the electric field is great because you get to choose the direction the particles go in if you and, use electric field yes and i do not want the electrons to bend because i want a straight line so that i know where my first heat came okay well, they're going to bend, right? But they're going to bend dependent on their initial velocity, energy, and yeah. the strength of your electric field. You yeah. control completely how they bend. Yes. You get yeah. them to follow. It's it's a curved track, but it's not a it's not a helix track or a spiraling track like you'd get with a magnetic field. No, it's not. It's not. Right. So this just bends up in a in a shape. Uh, probably like a parabolic shape, but it's it'll be different, but sort of shaped like a fraction of a parabola. And it'll get accelerated, and then when it hits that liquid-gas interface, um, that's going to cause an additional production of light. So as these electrons get up to that liquid-gas interface, after bending for a certain way, they're going to produce a secondary shower of light, which also gets picked up by the photomultiplier tubes. Yes. And this way, you say, okay, the and it's not just like you have one electron, you're producing multiple electrons as these particles move. That's going to say, you're basically getting a, a shadow of a track that you, you know this particle is producing a track and you get the signals at slightly different locations, but you say, okay, I had that primary signal that first photon signal and that told me where the collision took place and it also told me when that collision took place and now i get these secondary signals and that tells me when the electrons reached here and i can reconstruct the path that they took to reach here so if you know where they are and when they are at two different points in time and you know the forces you've applied, like the strength of your electric field, you can reconstruct everything about what were the tracks that these particles took, what were the paths they took, when did they take them, how fast were they going, how much energy was in them. And even if you take all the particles that have been given energy from this collision, you can even reconstruct what was the energy, momentum, and even the mass of the particle that came in and hit this xenon atom. Yes, so uh, 
so to be precise, uh, basically what we reconstruct uh, is really the energy deposited in the liquid xenon. And how do we do that? Well, uh, that's a that's a standard technique in any uh, experiment uh, in physics. Uh, you have to calibrate your detector, okay? So that means uh, in the end, what you see uh, is a signal from your photomultiplier tube, okay? So... And you can translate that into, if you want, a number of photoelectrons that produced from the photomultiplier tube. Okay. So we call that PE. Okay. Photoelectrons that the, that the PMT, uh, uh, saw. So then we need to know, okay, if I have, let's say, 200 photoelectrons, what does that correspond to in terms of energy? Okay. And to do that, you need to calibrate your detector. And how do we do that? We use the radioactive sources. So, for example, one radioactive source that we use is Krypton-83. We inject that into our chamber. Uh, it has a short half-life, uh, uh, so it won't stay uh, too much. And that, that gives off uh, gamma rays, which uh, of known energy. So then we know, okay, we saw that amount of photoelectrons that I know the energy they correspond to. So I knew that in the, if in the future I see that amount of photoelectrons, that corresponds to that amount of energy deposited in my detector. Uh, then to go back to the mass of the particle, okay, for that you need a model. So it's, uh, so that's where experiment and theory need to have a synergetic uh, uh, relationship uh, in a way. What we can tell is that amount of energy was deposited in my detector. That's what we, uh, what we can say. Right. And if you can measure that well enough and you understand matter, like you said, lots of elements have radioactive decays. Um, and lots of, lots of neutrons come in from, you know, from secondary collisions, and you have lots of cosmic rays that come from outer space and will pass through the Earth until they strike your detector, and you will have neutrinos coming from all over, and you will have muons, and you will have, you will have all sorts of known particles that you really can't shield your detector from, even though you're shielding your detector really well. I know that there are some experiments, and xenon might be one of them, where they coat the whole entire detector in lead, and then they coat the inside of the lead with old lead, because lead has been bombarded by stuff, and so some of it becomes radioactive, and it will emit these radioactive decays. So if you put old lead inside of the new lead, that old lead is going to have fewer of those radioactive decays and maybe absorb some of the some of the particles that the new lead emits. So you actually have like this double layer shield of lead, including some lead that they sh uh, that they salvage from shipwrecks. And I think that that's uh, I think that that's one of the neutrino detectors. But maybe it was even xenon that uses it. So okay, so we do something really cool, <laughs> which is that we put our detector under the earth, so that's underground. And the location of Xenon 110 is actually very lucky. So we work under a mountain, which is uh, the Grand Sasso Mountain, 
And so we, our shielding is really the mountain. Uh, for example, LZ, which is another dark, dark matter experiment, uh, which has been constructed in uh, South Dakota in the US, uh, that's in a mine. So usually it's either a mountain or a mine. Uh, why? Because you need a lot of material uh, and to shield from muons. So you don't want to read muons, but some will make it into the tank anyway. So what we do, we, uh, we put basically our dark matter detector is inside another uh, detector, which uh, is a muon detector. We call that muon detail. And that's a very uh, standard, if you want, uh, procedure in uh, dark matter experiments. Uh, even Lux had one. Um, and the, so our muon veto in Zin Wantan works uh, for, as you mentioned before, the Cherenk of light. So it's full of, of, of water and instrumented with PMTs, uh, which are uh, waterproof, obviously. And basically the way it works is that if uh, you're uh, the detector outside the dark matter detector, okay, so the liquid xenon TPC, if the muon veto sees something that vetoes the event, it means you're discarding the event. You don't want the event because we know if that, if that is a dark matter particle, it, the chance that uh, it interacted with the muon veto and then in the liquid xenon TPC is basically zero. So you only keep events which interact once inside your TPC. Now, now this is this is really important because I think a lot of people who've never worked in experimental physics will immediately object to this when they hear this that they're going to say Oh no, you're throwing your data away, and what if the data you're throwing away because you're vetoing it actually has the signal that you're looking for? What if dark matter actually does this thing? Or what if some new particle actually does this thing that you're throwing away? And I think that this is because most people don't understand what an experimental new positive detection looks like. That it's it involves understanding what your background is yes. what the noise background yes. actually is so can you can you tell us a little bit about that so i try to explain very in very simple words so um so basically when when do we say that is a discovery so when do we say we have found dark matter we say that uh, when uh, we know we, let's say we are expecting, uh, uh, I don't know, let's say 100 events. Okay. And that's because I model my background and I know that if dark matter doesn't exist, that will give me a hundred events. Okay. But then I see a hundred and five. Okay. So that five, if that five is enough high, enough larger than my, my background expectation, then I say, okay, I found dark matter. So it's really important to say what can be dark matter and what cannot be dark matter. It's uh, really, uh, it's really important to uh, distinguish what is our signal and what is our background. And for us, since we know that dark matter interacts so, so rarely, 
we cannot accept events which gave a signal in the muon veto and gave a signal in the TPC. We just say, okay, uh, that is a background event and that event is going to be kept as a background event, not a signal event. That's what we do. I think that is so smart, and I think the reason that that's so smart that maybe other people don't necessarily appreciate also is that, you know, you mentioned that, for example, Xenon 1 ton, yeah, it actually has like 2 tons of usable Xenon, but it actually has 3.2 total tons of Xenon, yes. and you're throwing away the data from maybe the outer third of this. But there's a good reason for that. You're throwing that away because your background is so much higher from that volume that than it is in, say, the middle of the volume that you have to throw away the place where the noise is so high that even if you get a good amount of signal and you could get an extra 50% of signal, you would actually lose more than you gain because your background would go up so high. Exactly. So understanding your background seems to be one of the most important, and I would say underappreciated, things that experimental physicists worry about is what is our background? How well do we understand it? And we've actually seen, if you've studied your physics history, we've actually seen cries of discovery in the past that came about exactly because we didn't properly understand our backgrounds. Yeah, so right now in particle physics, there is a kind of a magic number, which is a five sigma. So if uh, we, we, we claim discoveries, if uh, our signal is above this five sigma number, uh, uh, and that's arbitrarily chosen, but yeah, that's the number we chose. And let me add another thing. So another thing very important of uh, uh, noble gas uh, uh, time projection chamber, dual phase ones, is that uh, uh, there is uh, actually a property in uh, xenon and argon. Argon is the other gas uh, which is used in uh, it's used in neutrino physics, but also in other dark matter experiments, and. Uh, which is the, the following. So, uh, our, our background is represented a lot by, um, electrons or gamma particles or, or gamma rays. Okay. So we. Well, electrons are beta rays. So. Yeah, yeah exactly. And we don't, uh, so we don't want that. And, uh, so the, there is one property of the liquid xenon, which is the following. So if you have, a, yeah, let's call it a beta ray, or let, and let's say you have an alpha ray, okay, so... Uh, a helium it, nucleus. It, yes. Uh, or, for example, a neutron, okay, that would give you exactly the same signal of, a, on a, of an alpha ray in the, in the xenon TPC. So basically... Um, so let me try to explain this. So if you have an electron interacting with the xenon, the liquid xenon, that will give you a primary scintillation and a secondary scintillation, which, which are in a different proportion than a neutron particle, for example. Why is that? So, uh, so in, if a neutron interacts uh, with uh, the xenon, uh, basically the uh, electrons uh, produced 
will tend to recombine more. So basically by uh, looking at the ratio, okay, so the, the important thing here is the ratio. The ratio between the primary scintillation and the secondary scintillation tells you if it's an, an electron type of recoil or we say a neutron type of recoil. And that's very, very important. Why? Because dark matter will give you a neutron type of recoil, okay? So we basically cut away in our parameter space everything which is an electron type of recoil, okay? And then we have to try to minimize those neutron type of recoils, okay? Because that's the region where we expect dark matter to be. That's why, for example, we choose very carefully our materials so they are the most radio pure, okay? Because radioactivity gives you neutron type of recoils, which we don't want. Especially, we are especially afraid of radon. Why? Because radon is a noble gas, okay? And radon is, uh, is everywhere and it's produced uh, as in, in the chain of decays of uranium and thorium, okay? And the lifetime of uranium and thorium is just too high to have materials that which have zero uranium and zero thorium, okay? So, what, what kind of levels are we talking about? So we screen our materials uh, to be uranium and thorium pure to the uh, something like five or 10 part per trillion. That's the level of purity we want. Why? Because otherwise, as I said, you end up with radon. And since radon is a noble gas, it can sneak inside at the center of your TPC and give you a signal, which is exactly the same signal that a dark matter particle would give you. So it's really important to know how much radon we still have in our chamber. This this is also why isn't it really important to know how much energy is produced by all of these different radioactive decays because yes. if you see oh I see there was this much energy injected and this amount of energy oh look it could be dark matter or it could be the decay of radon-222 or whatever element or isotope you want, and it actually matches. Decays only happen at very specific energies, and if you see that specific energy, that should tell you right away, oh, this is probably not dark matter, this is probably this confounding signal. Yes, exactly. And we actually use uh, uh, radioisotopes uh, to uh, calibrate our detector. So I spoke about uh, Krypton-83. That's a source that we inject. But there are other xenon isotopes uh, in, uh, in, in our xenon, uh, which we use to actually calibrate, uh, uh, from an energetic point of view, our detector. Yes. And this is, this is a fascinating thing because xenon has gotten so sensitive that we know there are about eight or nine isotopes of xenon, right, with the same number of protons but different numbers of neutrons that occur in nature. And some of these are predicted to be absolutely stable, like they are supposed to be stable in infinite amount of time into the future to the best of our knowledge. But 
other isotopes of xenon should have theoretical decays, but with lifetimes that are too long to have been measured by any experiment. And earlier this year, the Xenon Collaboration came up with a fabulous announcement that said, actually, because all the xenon is spread all throughout our experiment, we detected this radioactive decay of an isotope of xenon that is now the longest lived, it has the longest half-life of any isotope or particle known to decay more than 10 to the 24 years. Yes. Right, more than 10 billion times the age of the universe. And xenon-1T measured its decay for the first time. That is so remarkable to me because it demonstrates how good xenon is at extracting a recoil signal, an energy injection signal above the noise floor of the background. Yes, that's that was very good for us because uh, it tells you that the detector is working that it's capable of doing physics, it's capable of measuring such a cool process uh, just by itself. I think it's very cool. Uh, so it's uh, it was really in a in a way it's a proof test uh, for for the experiment. Uh, like, is it working? Yes, indeed, because we can see things. Because usually for dark matter experiments, the problem is that we go by exclusion limits. So we publish papers by saying, oh, we haven't seen anything here. Nothing there, nothing there, and so on. And that's basically what we've, we've been doing in the past years. And being able to say we saw something which was uh, uh, expected, that's, that's remarkable. And this is, this is wonderful because it not only constrains dark matter physics, it constrains all sorts of beyond the standard model physics. Because it, it isn't just dark matter that could possibly show up in a recoil interaction. There's all sorts of new types of physics that could show up and affect an experiment like this. So when you see these spin-dependent, spin-independent cross-sections, these are limits that constrain all sorts of things beyond just the search for dark matter. Yes. So, for example, uh, the process uh, we observed uh, uh, is called the uh, double uh, electron capture. And uh, and in this process, uh, two neutrinos are emitted. So now we can also search for this so-called neutrino-less double electron capture, uh, which could uh, help us... Uh, answering important questions regarding the nature of neutrinos. And uh, yes. Yeah, there are, there's this big fundamental question. So we know neutrinos have mass, and we know that we see neutrinos when we see them all the neutrinos we see have one specific helicity, which means if they're moving in a certain direction, they're going to have an intrinsic angular momentum or what we call a particle spin that moves in a particular direction. Either, if you can imagine pointing your thumb in the direction the particle's moving, your fingers will curl around the direction of your thumb. Now, what's really interesting is if you point your left hand and your right hand in the same direction, you'll notice your fingers curl in opposite directions. Well, it's very weird. All of the neutrinos we've ever found in nature are left-handed, and all of the anti-neutrinos we've ever found are right-handed. 
But neutrinos have mass, which means they move slower than the speed of light, which should mean that if you boost yourself fast enough in one direction, that you would see from one frame of reference when you didn't boost, when you didn't change your speed, when you didn't accelerate past a certain limit, from one frame of reference, you would see a left-handed particle, a particle that was moving in a direction that spun I guess counterclockwise, but from the once you did your boost, what you would see would change the direction of it. It would make it look like a right-handed particle. So there's this idea that a neutrino and an anti-neutrino are the same particle, just viewed differently. If this idea is true, neutrinos would be a new type of fermion. Instead of being a standard fermion, what we call a Dirac fermion, they would be described differently as a Majorana fermion. And this latter scenario, if this is true, yes, it has all sorts of theoretical implications, but from an experimental point of view, it would allow this new process of what you said was a neutrinoless double beta decay. So a beta decay is where you have like a neutron converting into a proton and an electron and an anti-electron neutrino. But if you can say, oh, well, actually this anti-electron neutrino is the same as an electron neutrino, then it can interact with another particle, another particle in the nucleus, and cause that to also change from a neutron to a proton. But instead of it emitting that anti-electron neutrino, it absorbs the anti-electron neutrino from the previous decay. So instead, all you get out is those two electrons. That's why it's called neutrinoless, because the neutrino emitted by one, or anti-neutrino emitted by one, is absorbed by the other, but you get two electrons out. So this is a great way to test for new physics. And although xenon one ton isn't there yet, I think if they increase the volume by a factor of, it's not that much, it's somewhere between like 10 and 100, isn't it? That that if they increase the volume by that much, they should be able to tell whether neutrinos are these Majorana particles or aren't these Majorana particles. Is that is that right? Yeah, so, um, so we, so that's... So that's a, okay. That's a, not any area of my expertise, but I know that uh, our sen- we would be able to uh, uh, discover that only if uh, the uh, hierarchy of neutrinos is inverted. In the normal hierarchy, we would not have uh, uh, enough sensitivity to find that out. And in terms of mass, we are going from uh, around three tons of liquid ar- uh, xenon to eight tons of liquid xenon. And just to give you uh, an idea, so one kilo of uh, liquid xenon costs around uh, $1,000, $3,000, depending uh, on yeah the time of the year, like the year, etc. So it's, it's, it's quite expensive. So it's not trivial to go from three tons to eight tons. Yeah, you're basically talking about, you know, okay, we need like... We need like $15 million to buy this extra xenon exactly. to make our experiment bigger. Exactly. And also the, pro- the, the work production of xenon is not that high. 
So we are kind of like getting that all seen. And so, uh, yeah, so we also have to deal with that. But you also are saying to the world, hey, do you want to know if the neutrino hierarchy is inverted and neutrinos are Majorata particles? Do you want to know if those two things are both true? Well, then help us make $15 million and we can build this big xenon experiment and find out. See, xenon, dark matter detection experiments, not just for dark matter. And also the other thing that will will be uh, be sensitive to at, at some point, which is actually a problem for dark matter, and that is the problem for a dark matter uh, dual phase time projection chamber, is that at some point we're gonna hit what's called this neutrino floor. So neutrinos are produced from the sun. Uh, and we are constantly bombarded by neutrinos. But uh, um and we know that they, and we expect neutrinos uh, to, uh, to undergo these uh, coherent elastic scattering uh, with xenon atoms, uh, but that has never been observed because the cross section is just too little. But now we're becoming so sensitive that at some point our background is going to be solar neutrinos. And that's kind of a, that's kind of a problem for dark matter because at that point, uh, uh, our signal is already embedded in a huge uh, background signal, and that would be even uh, bigger. And yeah, that's kind of the uh, point where we kind of get stuck. And that's fine. I think every technique has a limit to what it can fundamentally do. And it's interesting to know that Xenon will approach this limit, and here's what this limit is set by. But because you mentioned neutrinos, pardon me. Because you mentioned neutrinos, I think it's really wonderful to talk about how this same technique of time projection chambers, of having particles hit and interact with your material, allows you to study the nature of these particles. Because this is good not just for dark matter direct detection experiments or not just for decay experiments where you're looking for rare decays of normal matter. This is also a really important technique for neutrino physics, and one of the experiments I know that you're working on and also using the time projection chamber technique is DUNE, where you're designing the proto-DUNE detectors. Yes, so um, so now we're talking about different scale uh, scales, uh, different costs uh, in, a, in a way that argon is much, much cheaper than liquid xenon. And that's important. And it's good to remember that to uh, theoretical physicists as well, because uh, we can buy a lot more argon. OK, and so how much is a lot? So Dune is remarkably big. So Dune is going to be um, this experiment that will run from uh, Fermilab, Chicago, to South Dakota. Um, so from Fermilab, we are going to fire a beam of neutrinos. This beam of neutrinos just tra travels through the Earth, 1,300 kilometers through the Earth. Yeah, for those of you not familiar with United States geography, the Fermilab near Chicago is in the state of Illinois, the mine in South Dakota is in the state of South Dakota, and these two states are not next to each other. This is a big distance we're talking about. When she says 1,300 kilometers for, for the American audience, that's like 800 miles. Yeah, so yeah. this is this is a long ways away. 
and when they reach South Dakota, they will um, meet uh, four detectors. So these four detectors use liquid argon time projection chamber technology. Each of them will hold 10,000 tons of liquid argon. And in uh, and the detector is going to be 60 meters long by 12 meters tall by 12 meters wide so it's going to be really really big and yeah and good thing argon is abundant i i love most people don't know that if you look at what's the earth's atmosphere made of the number one gas is nitrogen the number two is oxygen number three is usually water vapor and then number four is argon. About 1% of Earth's atmosphere is argon. How do you like that? Yeah, we like it a lot. And <laughs> uh, argon has very similar properties uh, to xenon. Uh, the main difference is that argon is li much lighter. So uh, that makes it bad in a way for dark matter because you want a dense target to, to enhance your signal. Uh, but for neutrinos, we, w we actually prefer to have like a big volume. So, uh, argon being cheaper, we, we prefer argon. And, uh, it's uh, slightly colder than xenon, but it's a bit warmer than liquid nitrogen. So, uh, liquid argon is minus 186 degrees Celsius. I'm not sure in Fahrenheit. That's okay. We can work in Celsius. <laughs> that The important thing to know about that temperature is it's a little bit warmer than liquid nitrogen at the liquid temperature. Just a little bit warmer than liquid nitrogen at standard temperature. And uh, yeah, and this project uh, is meant to learn uh, some un still unanswered questions uh, about uh, the nature of neutrinos. Uh, I just mentioned two things. So we still don't know. Uh, so we know that neutrinos come in three flavors. Uh, so the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tau neutrino. And we also know that they have mass. But it's not that the electron neutrino has a particular... It's a, the, the electron neutrino is a combination of three masses. We call these three masses new uh, one, new two, new three. Uh, not much fantasy there. And we basically don't know the, uh, the, 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 the absolute value of these three masses. And uh, we also don't know which one is lighter than the other, of course. This problem in, in neutrino physics is called the, the hierarchy problem. Uh, and then there is another thing. So um, in uh, neutrinos uh, um, may undergo a CP violation. And there is a, a parameter in neutrino physics that, that, tell you, that tells you how much... Uh, CP is violated or uh, if it is not violated at all. And this parameter is called delta CP. So what we want to do with Dune is measuring uh, this delta CP parameter, which may help us understand why matter won over antimatter uh, in the universe. 
Yeah, and that's that's some deep theory right there. So for those of you who are listening and who are curious about that, like what? How can this experiment that measures CP violation, which is basically to say, okay, if I replace all my particles with antiparticles, then that's the C violation. That's what the C in CPT is all about. Is the C as I replace the particles with their charge conjugate particles or their antimatter counterparts. The P is mirror reflection, which is to say, if you're a left-handed particle in the real world, then in the P world, where you have the parity being the opposite, you're a right-handed particle. So CP is saying, if I switch my particles for antiparticles and take the mirror reflection of them, if CP is conserved, all the physics should be the same. If CP is violated, the physics should be different. So when you're measuring CP violation, if you have both C violation and CP violation, you can, it's one of the three conditions you need to create a matter-antimatter imbalance. And this particular scenario is known as leptogenesis, where you would produce a neutrino asymmetry between matter and ma antimatter in the early universe, and then that symmetry would get converted by standard model interactions into a proton-antiproton -proton or neutron-antineutron asymmetry. So that could provide a possible answer to this puzzle of why is there more matter than antimatter in our universe. So that's that's one of the big motivations for doing the Dune experiment is to look for this. But even if that's not there, it's still interesting to do Dune to study neutrino oscillations, to study many different parameters of neutrinos, because you know you're going to detect them, you're going to measure them. It's just a question of what is this going to tell you? Exactly. So here it's less of a gamble with uh, uh, this type of neutrino experiments. So with respect to uh, the dark matter experiments in one time we, we just talked about before. And so, so I always say if you want to build a skyscraper, you cannot start uh, straight away from the skyscraper. So you build something smaller. Okay. So the skyscraper here would be the uh, dune far detector, which uses a uh, liquid argon time projection chambers. So right now we have a program going on at CERN, uh, which is called the, the Protodunes. So, so uh, Proto stands for prototypes. So we built uh, two uh, prototypes. So, uh, just remind you, so there, there, there is, there is going to be four modules uh, in South Dakota. And those four modules uh, will all use uh, liquid argon TPCs. Uh, so for neutrino physics is a little bit different. So there are two, um, techniques uh, that can be used. Uh, single phase uh, uh, time projection chambers and dual phase time projection chambers. In dark matter, there are also single phase TPCs, but the most common are dual phase TPCs. Uh, so in the single phase, uh, si single phase stands for the fact that you only have uh, uh, the liquid argon in one state that is liquid. Um, so at CERN, we have two uh, uh, detectors. Uh, the, they hold around 900 tons each uh, of liquid argon. One is a single phase time projection chamber, and the other one is a dual phase time projection chamber. 
So uh, I'll start with the dual one. So the dual one works very much like uh, the Xenon Wonton experiment uh, I described before, with the only difference uh, that uh, instead of producing a primary scintillation and then a secondary scintillation, once the electrons are extracted into the gas, they are multiplied uh, through uh, large electron multipliers. So these are basically gigantic PCBs with micro holes. Uh, you apply uh, a voltage difference in between the two plates, uh, the, the, bo the bottom and the top of the PCB, so that in these micro holes, you have a very, very high electric field. Uh, when I say high, I mean really high, like 30 uh, kilovolts per centimeter, okay? And when you reach that point, what happens is that uh, the electrons undergo a process which is called avalanche, where basically from one electron, you get lots of electrons. So why is that useful? Well, it's useful because you're amplifying your signal. And in physics, we always want, always want to, to, to have bigger signals. So that's the advantage of the dual phase TPC. Yeah. And that's, that, that I love because if you're, if you're asking like, well, what's a dual phase? What's a dual phase time projection chamber like? And the answer is it's like an electric guitar. And this is why you go electric is because you, you can get that amplified sound. And in this case, you can get that amplified signal that you can't get without that electromultiplication technique. Exactly. And in, instead, in the single, so the single phase uh, time projection chamber is, uh, um, it's an older technique. There have been detectors using that technique on that scale. The detector I'm talking about is called Icarus, which uh, uh, ran in Gran Sasso uh, now 10 years ago or more. Uh, yeah, by the way, if, if those of you who remember the opera Faster Than Light Neutrino fiasco, uh, the Icarus experiment was running at the same time, and yeah. the Icarus experiment showed, hey, if what opera got was correct, then it's inconsistent with what we've got, because we've measured the speed of neutrinos too, and they are not faster than light. So you might not have heard about Icarus, but for those of those scientists who were investigating the puzzle of opera faster than light neutrinos, Icarus was the experiment that directly told us the opera signal cannot be correct. And uh, right now, actually, Icarus in this, is in the U.S., so it's, uh, it's part of this uh, short baseline neutrino program at Fermilab, and it's now running, I know. I know. Those of you who thought that particle physics was dead in the United States, I mean, I will say it it kind of is. We we still have some experiments running, but um but the the highest energy frontiers are not taking place here. But that doesn't mean you can't still do useful and fascinating science. The wonderful thing about doing neutrino physics is a neutrino beamline that you start with an accelerator is the easiest beamline to build because all you do is you accelerate your particles like protons in a big circle and then you shoot them down a line towards your detector and all you need to do to build a neutrino beamline is shoot it through the earth. Just shoot it through the earth. Don't dig a tunnel. 
just shoot it straight through the earth. Why? Because you will produce lots and lots and lots of particles as your accelerated protons smash into the earth, smash into all that matter. All the particles that aren't neutrinos, they will decay away, they will interact, they will get absorbed, but the ones that are neutrinos, they won't interact. 99.9 plus 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 percent of these will not interact, so they just go straight through, and that's why you can make them hit your detector even after 1,300 kilometers of distance. If you're like, hey, what'd you do today? And the answer is absolutely nothing, you can always tell your boss, hey, I built a neutrino beam line today. Yeah, and uh, so we are not testing the protodunes uh, detectors at CERN with uh, neutrino beams. Uh, there is uh, not such a thing. So the single-phase uh, uh, liquid argon TPC, so the single-phase protodune, that was tested with uh, a charge beam uh, sometime in October last year. Now there is this big shutdown at CERN, so we don't have a beam anymore. It will come again uh, um I, th I think 2021, I think. Uh, and uh, um, the dual phase uh, uh, protodune instead, uh, we are about to fill it with liquid argon in the next week. So we are going to test it first with uh, uh, just uh, uh, cosmic muons, basically. Well, those are good because cosmic muons are always there. If yes. you hold out your hand... Uh, towards the sky, I think about one muon per second yes. from cosmic rays passes through your hand. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So that's good stuff. Uh, one thing I wanted to make sure everyone knew is even though the Dune experiment is going to be in the United States, the proto-Dune experiment is going on at CERN. And I think two things are remarkable. One, I love the use of the proto, but I still think the astronomers and astrophysicists have got the particle physicists beat. Because when we have a prototype, we just put a P at the end. And that turned the okra mission into oh crap, because we just put a P at the end of okra. And that is, that is my favorite astronomy prototype story. But the other thing I think is remarkable is... You can take this experimental technique that was developed, you know, for one particular application that was developed and refined to, for example, look for dark matter or to look at this high density xenon, you know, container and try and identify, okay, what, what particle tracks are getting made here and how can we reconstruct what that particle is? And you can apply this to an entirely different experiment that's designed to investigate the properties of neutrinos and designed to investigate the properties of very rare interactions that may tell us about the nature of neutrinos. This is something that I think is unique among physicists to experimental physicists. If you're, if you're a theoretical expert in one area, that expertise doesn't necessarily translate to a different area like that. But in experimental physics, all of these techniques are the same. And I think that's a remarkable, you know, that's a remarkable thing to have at your disposal because if you're skilled in time projection chambers, there are all sorts of different fields you could work in or all sorts of different experiments that you could design and apply this to. And also another thing about uh, uh, which really fascinates me uh, about the protodunes and June is that here we have 
So there was very good synergy between uh, the uh, between science and the industry. So the technology that we use uh, uh, for building the cryostat, so the cryostat is the big chamber that holds uh, the liquid argon, is the same technology uh, that is used to uh, ship around the world uh, liquefied natural gases in big ships. Uh, it's uh, this. Uh, it's it's called the stainless steel corrugating membrane. So when, uh, obviously, when you go from room temperature to uh, minus, uh, around minus 200 degrees, uh, you have contractions. Mm, materials might break. And stainless steel is a good choice. Still, you have these uh, uh, stretchy, stretching and contractions. So you need uh, a... Shape uh, that suits that uh, uh, suits those needs, uh, and uh, liquid liquefied natural uh, gas ships uh, have that technology, and there is this company uh, which helped us building uh, our cryostat, and I think that's very fascinating. I I think so too, and one of the things I love about this, and and I hope this comes across in the podcast because it definitely comes across if anyone meets you in person, Laura, and that's when you talk about experiments and the experimental techniques and all the different parts that go into it. You talk about this the same way that. Um, that a car enthusiast talks about all the different parts of a car or that an electrician talks about all the different steps in wiring a house and making light go on at the end that that you know I think when most people think about physics they only think of theoretical physicists, but experiments need to be built and calibrated and run and analyzed and improved. And this involves, you know, getting your hands dirty and using your body and actually building something on a tight schedule and and at all hours of the day. And and you do this because it is a beautiful and complex thing that is exquisitely precise and brings us so thoroughly into the frontiers of what is known. I, I don't think most people have this appreciation, and I know you've been undertaking an effort to bring people into this world. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So, um, so I, uh, sometimes I go, so I'm based in Abu Dhabi and, uh, I often go to CERN and in the past months uh, I've done that quite often, uh, because I'm, ta I, I basically, uh, I'm taking care of uh, a device uh, that's been installed in the dual phase protodune, which is uh, a purity monitor. It measures the purity of the liquid argon. Anyhow, uh, so last time that I went, uh, I brought my camera inside with me in the cryostat and a microphone, and uh, I performed uh, a song with a colleague of mine inside the cryostat. I'm, uh, I've been wanting to do another video. I'll do that shortly. Uh, I would like people to know how it is like to be inside of a detector, working inside of the detector for even like eight hours. Uh, so. Experimental physics is a lot about that as well. It's uh, you're down there, you have uh, a bolt uh, which is not of the right dimension. You have to go out, uh, find the bolt. Uh, there are very 
small practical problems sometimes. Uh, and uh, I think that too often we think uh, of physics uh, as uh, like an immaculate uh, uh, kind of discipline. It's not. Uh, it's, uh, as you said, uh, it's sweat. Uh, it's uh, taking yourself inside this thing uh, with a helmet, with, uh, a, uh, with a suit, etc., and uh, and also it's it's a lot of team uh, teamwork uh, these experiments are built by a lot of people and i think that one of the of a, a crucial role is uh, is is uh, from uh, technicians i think uh, technicians are underappreciated and it's so important to have good technicians when you're building an experiment uh, because you have a time pressures, uh, uh, time pressure, uh, because uh, you need to have uh, done a delicate work uh, in a very short time. Uh, so it's not like a, a commercial piece that you have to make that you have to make at a workshop. No, it's a customized thing, and having technicians that can do that. Uh, it's uh, it's it is really precious. Uh, I, I would love to have more technicians in uh, in physics. That's something we don't have. No, and it's amazing too because when you see these experiments for the first time, I think a lot of people they'll see the animations of it and they'll think like, oh, these are these nice clean uh, metal and ceramic parts and they're just all nice and neat and and that's it and then you go into a lab and you see that there's wires everywhere and they're just bare exposed wires with shielding around them and that's it and everything's covered in tin foil and it's 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 a completely different environment than the sterilized view that we have. It's basically, I, I like to think of it as it's like the opposite of like a clean interface Apple product. Like if the Apple face is the nice shiny finished product where all the wires and everything is hidden inside this nice sleek containers, experimental physics is the opposite of that because no, everything is on the outside because you have to access it and you need to change it and tweak it and work with it. And that's that's really what it's all about is is dealing with this very temperamental equipment in an extremely delicate and precise fashion. Yeah, that's uh, then obviously inside the detector, you want the detector to be clean, but that doesn't mean the work is clean in a way. Uh, it's it's a lot of effort. So, in for example, in, in Zen, for xenon one ton, then it's also different. So, all the components of xenon one ton are. Um, are put together in a clean room. We are not, al we are not allowed to have more than something like a 10 uh, milligrams of dust in the entire detector. So it's a little bit different. Uh, in Protodune, uh, we're not so concerned uh, about dust as we are in Xenon 1 ton because uh, uh, we're not so concerned about radio purity as well. Uh, but anyway, yes, my message is that uh, yeah, physics is not just this idealized thing which comes uh, as one thinks about it. No, you really have to think about it, uh, make it happen. Any piece in, a, in the detector is customized. Uh, 
it's not like, uh, as you said, a net pro product uh, that you buy off the shelf. Uh, no, you, we need to design it. Uh, we need to think about the materials. Uh, we need someone to build it for us, uh, etc. No, and this is this is again this is this is the wonderful thing for people who go into experimental physics because I really think there's this there's this just fantastic thing where when you go to work on a project you are creating something new to that that's never been created before like things like it may have been created before but because you're doing this for scientific purposes you are building something that is more something more precise larger volume has greater sensitivity than anything else that came before it and that's incredibly exciting but also all of the techniques you've learned doing everything that's ever been done before including the what you've learned from other people doing and documenting their their work their research their building of of these devices um you get to push the frontiers every new iteration of xenon or the successor to lux like lz or the successor to any number of uh, neutrino experiments like Minos or Miniboon, um, these these all go to the next level. These all go to a greater precision, a greater sensitivity. They push into a new frontier. And every time you do that, you need to improve your equipment, your apparatus. Your you need to improve something about your experiment. And and I think there are a lot of people out there who love that, who love getting their hands dirty, who love working on a project, who love knowing that the end goal of getting this right means we get more and better data about this problem, this puzzle, this unknown, this frontier than we've ever gotten it before. But I think a lot of people need to know, you know, this day-to-day -day stuff, what we're doing day in, day out, at all hours of the night, at on a weird schedule, with, with all this intricate equipment, that in itself can be an extremely satisfying thing. Yes, and as you said, when, when you said we get, it's really a we, it's never an I in physics, uh, especially particle physics. Uh. So it's a collaborative effort of many people and a skill which is underappreciated in physics, I think, is uh, to have the skill of collaborating with other people, with other people that might have a different culture than yours, different, uh, a different language uh, Although we all speak English, uh, I do with an Italian accent. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we so haven't noticed, not even a little. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, I think uh, this 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 aspect uh, is not appreciated enough. Uh, when we talk about uh, experiments in physics that are successful, it's because you have a collaboration behind. Too often, there is only one person that goes on the pedestal, but it's uh, it shouldn't be that. It's really a collaboration because from the technician to the uh, data analyst uh, that does the, the, yeah, the data analysis, uh, I mean, you really need everyone from simulations to uh, installation, etc. And we need to work together. And when you have time pressure, that's even harder. So it's really good uh, to have people that can work together. Physics uh, should be uh, 
done with people like that. Yeah, and and one of the things I've heard you say uh, to me previously, although not on this podcast, is how much you like working with so many of your collaborators. Yeah, I so I've always been scared that um, this was in high school uh, of physics in a way because I thought it was like a lonely job, which sometimes it is. I mean, if you're working on a simulation, you're go- doing that. Uh, it's just you and the computer. Uh, but that can be done in a collaborative way. Uh, we also have lots of tools right now, like Slack or Skype or Gitter that can, uh, th- where you can communicate with someone who's uh, on it in, in another side of the earth. Uh, but yeah, I think that at the time, so in high school, I thought of physics as, yes, as a, as a, standalone job but it's not uh, it's uh, it's really working together and this is something that uh, i think uh, is especially important in experimental physics uh, maybe less uh, in other fields but for us is extremely important no and i i love this idea because when we're talking about these large collaborations, these large variety of skills you need to bring together, and these enormous and expensive experiments, uh, you really start to appreciate that this is not, you know, oh, like my city or my state or my country is is building this experiment and doing this experiment. These are really all global efforts. This is not, uh, oh, uh, Italy is going to discover the mysteries of the neutrino or the United States is working very hard to discover uh, dark matter. This is, no, the entire world is working together to make these experiments as high quality and give us the greatest chance of new discovery in the places that we are capable of looking, that this is this is civilization-scale science. Yes, and also I think diversity brings, uh, uh, brings in skills uh, uh, in an experiment uh, which, uh, which are, yeah, more... Uh, diverse, uh, and that is is a is a pro for the experiment. Uh, you might have uh, people with different backgrounds, uh, and uh, and and it's good. Yeah, I mean, you're you're an experimental physics, you're experimental physicist from Italy, living in Abu Dhabi, working on an experiment that's based in CERN right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is like this is just life as a physicist, isn't it? Yes, it is. I I'm I'm especially thankful to be in uh, NYU Abu Dhabi uh, with these regards. Uh, there are so many nationalities here. There are actually even more languages spoken here than at CERN, and uh, people come from anywhere in the world. Uh, so it's truly a diverse environment. Uh, and you also see that dealing with uh, people that have a different culture from you, uh, different traditions, uh, different language, at the beginning is maybe it's, it's, it's tougher, but then you start appreciating, appreciating that uh, being diverse uh, is, is fruitful, uh, that uh, brings in a, a novelty, something new, and you can learn from that other person that, who's so different from you. 
Yeah, and I think I think you and I have talked about this previously. I think it's worth bringing up here that um, you know, we we typically do science and talk about science in English, and this has become sort of a global thing, but it's only a small fraction of the world that actually speaks English. And you're someone who's also interested in outreach. You mentioned you've done YouTube videos. I also know you've written comics about physics. And you, you've got to get the feeling that by doing this in English, even though this is, this is great that we can all speak the same language and share the same science and the same results and communicate with each other, that that by doing this primarily in English, we're missing out on a big chunk of the world. Yes, I agree. So I've been doing a few YouTube videos explaining my research, uh, just because I feel that uh, most of the YouTube channels uh, on of science uh, are done by people who are not uh, really on the field. I mean, they got a degree in physics, uh, but then obviously if you want to do outreach full time, as you may know more better than me, you have to dedicate uh, to it uh, like your entire day, your entire life. So I thought, okay, maybe I can add my two cents. Uh, that's not my entire life. Outreaching is not my entire life, but I dedicate a little bit of my time to that just because I enjoy doing that. And uh, I've made a few uh, videos uh, in Italian and English just because uh, those are the two languages that I know. And recently, so last week, uh, I translated a video into Arabic. So the video where I uh, explained uh, the... Um, double electron capture uh, we observed uh, in Zin Wantan. That was initially in English. So a colleague of mine translated into Arabic and, an, and then another colleague of mine uh, read the script. And uh, it was fun. And also I noticed how how it was difficult to translate some of the words in Arabic. And actually some of the words uh, we had to, to make that up. We have, like, my colleague had to come up for the first time with uh, some Arabic words uh, to explain the physics concepts, uh, just because physics is usually explained in English. All peer-reviewed journals are in English. So that's their language. So it was, uh, it was an interesting project to do. That's that's got to be so fascinating, but also so rewarding to know that you are doing everything you can to bring this thing you're so passionate about, about what you do and what it means and what it's like and who it's for, to bring that story to an audience that you know has never heard this story before. Yes, uh, especially because I also, so mm, when we want to do outreach, uh, unfortunately, it's really hard to do un outreach uh, to people who don't, do not have a scientific background. Uh, I don't know. I, maybe I'm, it's just my opinion. And uh, one obstacle, it's obviously language uh, because it's, it, we take for granted that, that everyone speaks English, uh, but that's not the case. Uh, like, for example, my parents do not speak, uh, uh, English, and we are preventing a big chunk of the population to know what we're doing. And that's just a pity. I think the, the, for me, the reason to do outreach is that I would love to people to know the cool things that we do. 
uh, because I think it's just a pity if you don't know them. If you're missing out that the universe is expanding uh, or if you're missing out that we observed, uh, uh, we took a picture of a black hole for the first time, if you're missing out all of these, uh, it's a pity. And, and it's a pity even more if you're missing these out because you don't speak that language. I think, I think that's... I think you'd have to be a real Philistine to argue against this, because the idea that science is this full suite of knowledge that we've gained about the universe, that science is this process by which we make sense of the universe and improve our understanding and refine it and and come up with models that can explain the full suite of evidence we have and then go and test those models' implications and see if they pan out or if nature surprises us, and that we can even do experiments that have the potential to allow nature to surprise us. This is this is an endeavor unlike any other in all of human civilization's history. Laura, I want to thank you for being on the show, for sharing so much of your time and knowledge with all of us. What final thoughts would you like to leave our listeners with? I think that uh, I would like to leave this thought that science is not done only by genius, only by super intelligent people. No, science is done by all sorts of people who have different skills uh, and we need uh, to tell to our, our kids this more often. Anyone can be a scientist. If you have a passion for it, go for it. I think there's no better, there's no better thought to end this podcast on than that. Laura, Thank you for joining us. Once again, that was Dr. Laura Menenti. She's a postdoctoral research associate at NYU Abu Dhabi. She works on the Xenon 1 ton and Protodune experiments. And uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from her in the future. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. I'd like to remind everyone that the Starts With a Bang podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone who donates to the Starts With a Bang Patreon at the $5 a month level or above. So thanks go to Cliff Elgin, Robert Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Paulina Barron, Stefan Berniger, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Joseph Dvorak, Jeffrey David Maricini, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Daniel Nadasi, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcik, Danny, Alexander Marius, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franzen, Dick Pills, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Randall Slemak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radilovic, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you here next time for more Starts With a Bang. 